Good morning. It's wonderful to see you and welcome you here in our auditorium, all those that are joining online and a number of folks and the overflow over uh, in the hub. What a joy to be here on this beautiful, beautiful Lord's Day with you. And I want to say to all of you, happy birthday. That's right. This is our birthday. This is the 59th birthday of uh, the founding of this church. And we give Lord thanks for that. So yeah, that's right. The Lord's been faithful 59 years. And uh, sometimes I'm amazed to remember how many of those 59 I've been here. <laughs> and, uh, but how faithful our God has been over the years. How faithful over the years. And how faithful this year, right? Uh, unprecedented year. <laughs> And someone said recently, uh, I think Derek said, aren't you looking forward just to be saying precedented? But God has been so faithful this year. And I'm always moved by the statement of that great, great missionary, William Carey. As we look back over many years, but we can always say the future is as bright as the promises of God, Right? future is as bright as the promises of God, and I'm excited about the future that he has for us, the hope that he has for us to continue by his grace to be able to send out his light and truth, to love God, love people, and to impact this world for Jesus Christ, one life at a time. That's how we make a difference for Jesus Christ. And may he find us faithful, right? May we be faithful. Now you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to the passage that Jeff read for us. What a wonderful passage, especially on this uh, anniversary Sunday for us. Gospel of Luke chapter 9. The Gospel of Luke chapter 9. Now I'm sure that you know that in our lives there are moments and then there are moments. There are moments, there are moments that change everything. Nothing is the same after those few moments. I often share that with couples in premarital counseling. Uh, most of them are going to stand here on this platform with me. I'm going to say a few words to them. They're going to say a few words to each other. I'll say a few more words. There'll be a song, and they'll go down this aisle, out the door. And they're the same people. But nothing's the same. <laughs> Everything is changed. Why? Because they have pledged themselves they have made promises to each other. They have in, entered into covenant together. And life ahead is going to be a shared life. Life ahead is going to be a shared journey. It won't be the same. And in Jesus' ministry, I want you to see this morning that for the disciples then and for the disciples now, the moment that changes everything is described in this passage that we have before us. This is the moment that describes and defines that which changes everything. It's the moment of identification and it is the moment of the beginning of a new journey and a new destination. It's a moment of identification. And with that right identification begins a new journey and understanding of a new destination. And so this morning, with the Lord's help, I want to talk to you about the King's journey and ours. The King's journey and ours. How many of us realize that our journey is with the king. And our journey 
is completely bound up in his journey. Disciples journey with their Lord. And his journey is their journey. Now, when we read this passage, it is a season in Jesus' life. It's a season of questions. All kinds of questions. Questions by the crowd and questions by that so-called King Herod. What are the questions that people have been asking for over two years now? They've been asking, who is this? Who is this man? You read the passage, that's what Herod asked in verses 7 through 9. Who is this? Well, now, after two and a half years with his disciples, and that's approximately how long when we get to this passage that Jesus has been with his disciples. It's about two and a half years. And after two and a half years, he prays, for just the moment. And he knows that the moment has come. And it is the king's turn, the true king's turn, Jesus, to ask the question. It's his turn to ask the question. Look at verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying, the disciples were with him, He asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Now Matthew, in his gospel, tells us a little bit more about this event. We're told that Jesus intentionally took his disciples to the far north of the country of Israel. He took them to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea of Philip, King Herod Philippus. Because King Herod... The father of King Herod, Philip, had built temples up in that part of Israel. But his son, King Philippus, not to be overdone by his father, he built a temple to Caesar as the God-man to Caesar as divine. And he built the temple complex over atop of an ancient cave where people had gathered in pagan worship for centuries before and human sacrifice had been carried out in that cave. And it was called the Gates of Hades. It was considered by the pagans to be the entrance into the other world, the underworld. And so Jesus took his disciples to the heart of darkness. He took them to a place none of them would want to go. He took them to the epicenter of darkness, to a temple dedicated to Caesar as God. And he asked them the question, now who do you say I am? It's quite a moment, isn't it? Who do you say that I am? Well, standing there at the gates of hell, Peter made a heavenly confession, didn't he? He made a heavenly confession, and I want you to hear the declaration about the king, because here's the declaration, the identification of the king. Look at verse 20. He said, who do you that you say that I am. And Peter answered, and he answered for himself, and he answered for all, you are the Christ of God. Peter nailed it, didn't he? He nailed it. But listen carefully, it was not something he had figured out on his own. 
Because Matthew tells us that Jesus responded, You are blessed, Simon, son of Jonah. Yes! You are blessed because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You did not figure this out on your own, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. By my Father's grace, you have come to know who I really am. Your trust is in me. This is a work of God. And Peter made that great declaration. He's saying that you, Lord Jesus, you're not just a prophet raised from the dead. You're not just a miracle worker. You're not just a teacher. You are the Christ of God. You are the anointed one. You are the Messiah of God. And Matthew again gives us a little more information. He says that Peter uttered these words, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now that's the confession of every Christ follower. Everyone who is a follower of Christ, by God's grace, has come not just to say those words, but to believe them with all of his or her heart and rely upon them and put their faith and trust in Christ, the Son of God. Every believer, true believer, has come to that confession. But that's not just the confession of every follower of Christ. That's the confession of the church through the ages, isn't it? Because Jesus said, according to Matthew, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, my ecclesia, my gathering, my assembly. You are Peter. You're a little stone. That's what Peter means, Petros. You're a little stone. But upon this rock, and Jesus used another word, a play of words, he said, but upon this Petra, and Petra means this giant rock, this huge foundation stone, meaning what Peter has just said by the grace of God, that it is upon this confession it is upon this reliance on Jesus and this testimony of Jesus as the Christ, the only Son of God, that Jesus is going to build His assembly on this earth. Now that's a moment. What a startling moment of grace. Such a profession and such a promise. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon this rock, I am going to build my church and the very gates of Hades, the very power of hell, will not be able to stand against it. Now that is a moment. But then, the moment came. What did I tell you earlier? There are, there are moments that change everything. Now that's a moment. But then the moment comes. It's the startling moment of truth. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus shared in response to this declaration about him as the king. Identifying him as the king. He shares about his determination. The determination of the king. Verse 21, and he strictly charged them and he commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priest and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now talk about shutting down a celebration. I mean, this is way beyond cold water in the face. He, 
He has just been declared king. He, he's just been identified as king and he's made the promise he's building his assembly on this earth that even the power of hell can't stand against. And the next thing he says is, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed. On the third day, rise again. Now friends, after two and a half years, you've got to understand, this is the moment. After two and a half years, these disciples have been with him and they know he is the Messiah. And all the hopes and all the aspirations they have for the kingdom, everything their fathers and their mothers and their ancestors have held close to their hearts over the centuries, all wrapped up in him and his triumph and his bringing of his kingdom and the glory of Israel. Jesus wipes it all out in a moment. He says, I'm not headed to Jerusalem for a coronation. I'm headed for death and rejection. This is the turning point in Jesus' ministry. This is the turning point in the disciples' lives. And if you're interested, this is the turning point right here in the whole Gospel of John. For nine chapters in our Bibles... So the Gospel of John, I think we're in Luke, aren't we? I think the John's another. That's, that's another Gospel, okay. Yeah. <laughs> there has been a fine series done on the Gospel of John here. I want you to know that. But this is the turning point in the Gospel of Luke because he spent nine chapters talking about the person of Christ. Who is he? Who is he? And now... Beginning here, Luke's focus is on the mission of Christ. What has He come to do? What has He come to do? Now, in response to this confession by His disciples, it, it's amazing what Jesus does. Notice these two things that Jesus does in response to Peter's confession. Number one, he forbids the disciples to tell anyone. Do you notice that? Verse 21. It says he strictly charged them and commanded them. These are very strong words. These are double commands. It's the idea is don't you even think about telling someone this. That's how we might say it today. Why? Why would Jesus take such a great confession about who he is and then tell his disciples, don't you dare breathe a word of this to anyone? Why? Well, there are many reasons, but a couple very clear, I think. Number one, Jesus is going to have his disciples sharing a partial gospel. He's not going to have them go out sharing what they don't yet understand. That, yes, there's a Christ, but there can't be the Christ without the cross. There can't be the Christ without the sacrifice. There can't be the gospel of Christ without the resurrection. They don't understand this yet. They won't fully understand it until Christ has finished His work that He came to do. And the Holy Spirit gives them the understanding, the power to be able to share it. He's not going to have them share a partial gospel. And friend, I want you to hear this. Any testimony about Jesus by anyone that does not go to the cross and the empty tomb and the glorified Christ is not the gospel. It's not the good news. It will help no one. It will save no one. It will change nothing. Only the truth of the gospel, full gospel of a Christ who has been rejected, who has suffered and died, but he's been resurrected. That gospel is the power of God. Why won't Jesus 
let them tell anyone. Well, he doesn't want them sharing a partial gospel, but there's also something else here. Listen carefully. Jesus was always under his father's timetable. Jesus was not going to be pressured into doing anything. Jesus knew what would happen if people hijacked the kingdom for their own political purposes. Jesus would not be used. He would not be used. And He would not let His kingdom be taken over for man-made selfish purposes. And by the way, in case we're in doubt, Jesus still won't do that. Jesus won't be used. Jesus is sovereign. Yes, friends, Jesus is king, right? But listen carefully. He's no kingmaker. He is the king. There's no king but King Jesus. And to Him, we gladly take a knee. Jesus is sovereign, but guess what? He's making clear here, He is a servant. He is sovereign, but He is a servant. Jesus had a mission. He had a mission to fulfill. It was a mission that His Father had given Him. And now, having forbade the disciples to share who He was, He foretells the disciples His mission. He says, this is my mission. Verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Notice that. Connect those two things. The Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? He is who Peter just declared Him to be. The Christ of God. Those two go together. The Son of Man. Old Testament term for the Divine One. And the Christ of God, they're one and the same. And I want you to notice this word must. If you mark your Bible, verse 22, you ought to mark the word, I think, must. What is Jesus saying? The Son of Man, the Messiah, must suffer. It must be done. He must be rejected. And the word rejected here, you need to understand, is a very strong word. Do you know what it means? It means to be evaluated as in a court of law and a legal decision to be made. He must be rejected. What's this mean? Jesus for three years proved to the people of Israel who He was. He proved to His people, His nation, who He was. And their assembled leaders in the Sanhedrin, they made the verdict. Let Him be crucified. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. He must be executed. This is the plan of the Father. It's a sinful action of men. But sovereign over that is the plan of God where His Son would suffer and be rejected and be executed. But in that, salvation would come and He must be raised. Amen? Amen. On the third day, He must be raised to life. Friend, I want to tell you, a dead Savior is no good. He's no help. This was the journey ahead for the king. And Jesus' words staggered the disciples. Just staggered them. As a matter of fact, it just enraged Peter because his good testimony had just been messed up. I mean, he, he's, he's nailed it. He's, 
he's, he's done it, and, and he's heard, that's great, Peter. And after he makes that great confession, what's he start doing as soon as Jesus talks about suffering and dying? Peter literally, we're told in the other Gospels, he grabs Jesus. He grabs, he lays hands on Jesus and says, this will not happen to you. This is not going to happen. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Not meaning that he's become Satan, but get behind me, my adversary. You don't understand the things of God. Don't try to hinder me from this. I must do this. Then evidently, and as you, if you want to read this account in different Gospels, it'll help you. Evidently, Jesus let it set in for a while. You see, we go from one verse to another. Verse 22, 22nd verse to the 23rd verse. But if you read carefully the other Gospels, evidently Jesus let it set in for a while. And then... He came back to what he had said. He began to share with the crowds and with his disciples not only what he had just said, but what it meant to them. Because, see, listen, he's turning now, he's headed toward Jerusalem. And he will not have anyone follow him under false pretenses. He wants anyone who follows him to understand there's a cost. There's a cost to follow him, and they must decide. And that's what I want you to see next. There is a decision that must be made for the king. The, the cost must be counted, and there is a decision made for the king. You see, Jesus told them what was going to happen to him, and now he tells them what they must be willing to do. He's telling them what he is going to do. Now he tells them what they must do. Look at verse 23. And he said to, what's the next word? All. He said to all of them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now let's be clear on something here. He's not talking about merit or earning salvation and forgiveness. Salvation is absolutely free, isn't it? It's free grace. But my friend, listen carefully. Salvation is free, but salvation's not cheap. It's not cheap grace. It's not Jesus suffered and died in agony and blood and endured rejection. And He's done it all. And now, you just say, that's good for me. I'm one of yours. See you when I get to heaven, Jesus. No. Jesus is very honest. You see something about love. Listen, friends. Love speaks the truth. Greatest friend you have is the person who will tell you the truth. Maybe they don't tell it to you in love and it hurts your feelings, but be thankful that they're telling you the truth. That's love. Jesus loves us too much to lie to us. And quite frankly, many people have been lied to. They've been lied to and they're being lied to this day. That to be a follower of Christ will cost you nothing. It's a salvation without sacrifice. It's a conversion without commitment. 
It is joy unspeakable without any denial at all. I don't read this in this verse, do you? I don't hear this in Jesus. Notice the words. I say this to all. If anyone, I'm saying it to everyone and I'm saying it to each one. If anyone wants to what? Come after me. What's that mean? To be my disciple. If anyone wants to be my disciple. This is a universal invitation. If anyone, thank God, isn't that great? It's an invitation for all. If anyone wants to be my disciple, yet there must be a personal and an essential decision. Now, there are four words I want to quickly give you, very quickly. They're not on the screens here, but but four words that I think describe this decision. Very quickly, let me give them to you. Number one, this is a decision that is one of discipleship. The first word is discipleship. Look at verse 23 again. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, to come to faith, listen carefully, is to become a follower. To come to faith in Jesus is to become a follower of Jesus. There is no such thing as becoming a person who has come to faith who has not become a follower of Jesus. A Christian is a disciple. A Christian is a follower of Jesus. Do we follow Him perfectly? No. Do we fall down on our face? Yes. Do we go astray so far and for so long at times? Yes. But by God's grace, do we persevere? And do we come and by His gracious hand come back and follow? Yes. Jesus' call has never changed. You know what His call to you today is? It's so simple, but it's so absolute. His invitation to you, to me, to all of us. Follow me. Follow me. The second word, this decision, involves denial. The word denial. Verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, that's discipleship, let him, next word, deny himself. This is a very strong word, denial, here. He says, let him deny himself and take up what? His cross. Now when Jesus said cross, I need to make sure we all understand he wasn't talking about jewelry. When he said cross, listen to me, everybody shuddered. In all their lifetimes, As a matter of fact, about the time Jesus, at the age of 12, came with his parents to the temple, do you remember that? About that same time, there was a man named Judas who told people he was a Messiah. He lived in Galilee. He got some people to follow him. They ran into and and tore into the armory at Sepphoris, four miles from Jesus' town in Nazareth. They got into the royal armory, they armed themselves, and Judas led them in revolt against the Roman Empire. And they were destroyed by the Romans. And those that were taken alive, 2,000 of them, were nailed on crosses on all the roads in Galilee. Jesus and all of his followers, when they were little boys, young men, had seen what the cross means. He said, take up the cross. The cross here means one thing. It means death. Death, 
But Jesus means it here in a different way. Notice he defines what the death is. Does it mean if you follow him, you're going to become a martyr? Probably not, though some will. And millions have. But what is the death? It's this. It's denial of self. You see that? Let him take up his cross and deny himself. What is this cross? What is this death? It is denying yourself. It, what does that mean? It is a denying of everything that the world thinks is valuable. It's denying everything that the world system tells you matters. You know what this word denial Deny is actually also translated, it's disown. When a parent disowns a child, disinherits a child, this is the same word. What is Jesus saying? If you're going to come after me, you've got to literally die. You've got to disown yourself. You've got to disinherit yourself from the things of this world. Meaning, your value system has got to be radically different. You value me above all the empty things this world calls valuable. I become most precious to you. How often do we have to do that? How often do we have to make that decision if we're going to be followers? Well, in a revival service, at a camp meeting when you throw a stick in the fire? No. What did Jesus say? Let him take up his cross. Why? Daily. And follow me. It's a daily choice. Funny thing about life, you can only live it one day at a time. And that's one of the struggles with daily life. It's so daily. We need to be clear here. Let me say one other thing. Our cross here, Jesus is talking about, is not hardships that people in life endure. As sad and tragic as they are, both people who are followers of the Lord and people who are not followers of the Lord, they suffer terrible hardships. That's not what the cross is. Sometimes people say, well, I guess it's just my cross to bear. No, 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 no. This is a cross that identifies you with Jesus. It's a cross because of Jesus. It's, a, it's denial of the things of this earth because you value Jesus as your surpassing treasure. He is the pearl of great price to you. He is the treasure that's hidden in the field that everybody else is walking over. But to your heart, He has become the surpassing treasure of your life. I want li to listen to what a person who's known suffering said. Quadriplegic. Johnny Erickson Tauda. She said, I have learned that it is a passion for God that will give me a passion for people. And this utter delight in Him will come from the toughest of trials that you are about to face. Our affliction becomes that which pushes us, shoves us down the road to the cross. And that's what it means to become like Him in His death. Don't think, listen to this woman from the wheelchair. Don't think that the cross is simply the wheelchair or an irritating job or an irksome mother-in-law. Listen carefully. The cross is where you die to sin and live to God. Wow. It's a new value system. Jesus said, you've got to make this choice, disciples, and you've got to make it deliberately. Look at verse 24 and 25. He said, think this over. Count the cost. Do the math. <laughs> Listen to Jesus. Work the math out for them. Haven't you been glad from time to time in some of those math classes when the teacher just works the math out for you? Simple, isn't it? <laughs> when they do it. Here Jesus does the math. He adds it all up. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man? If he gains the whole world, there, the value system of the world, that's what we're to die to. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses or forfeits himself, his own life, everything that is life, everything that's life now and forever, your soul and all that it represents. If you lose that, what's the world compared to that? Jesus says, count the cost. Do the math. He's, listen, Jesus is so honest. He says it's temporary cost or it's eternal gain. It is temporary profit or it is eternal loss. This is a choice which Jesus gives us. He says, you choose which is best and wisest. This is what Jesus is saying. You make the choice. Think this through. Which is more valuable? Eternal riches indescribable or eternal loss unimaginable? If you've ever taken a class in British literature, you will be familiar with the name Somerset Maugham. One of the great British writers of all time. He died in 1965 at the age of 91. He was so famous and so fabulously rich with an incredible villa looking out from the French Riviera. His nephew, Robin, described what it was like to visit his uncle, who he called Willie. He said, I looked around the drawing room at the immensely valuable furniture, pictures, and objects that were his success, and all of his success allowed him to acquire. I remember the villa. I could see through the windows. I remember the Mediterranean Sea. He had 11 servants. He was the envy of all the other millionaires on the Riviera. He dined off silver plates, waited on by Marius, his butler, and Henry, his footman. But it no longer meant anything to him. On that afternoon, Robin says, I found him reading the Bible that I had given to him. And this famous and fabulously wealthy man said, I've been reading the Bible you gave me, and I've come across a quotation. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Somerset Maugham said to his nephew, I must tell you, my dear Robin, that text used to hang opposite my bed when I was a child. Then in an intimate moment, as he weighed the trade off, his soul hanging in the balance, the great writer said this, of course it's all a lot of bunk. His nephew sadly went on to describe the bitterness of his uncle's last days. Somerset Maugham died crying out, I'm not ready. I'm not dead yet. I tell you, I'm not ready. Sadly, he didn't heed the admonition of the word of God that hung over his bed as a child. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, loses his own soul? What can you give in exchange for your soul? This decision to follow Christ, when you weigh it in the balances of a few years here, a few years of profit and everything you want here against eternity with Him. Weighed against the unimaginable sorrow of hell. What decision makes sense?
Jesus is so decisive. He says, I want, that's the fourth word. I want this to be decisive. A decisive decision. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem. There's suffering ahead. There's rejection for me. There's death. But resurrection and I'm coming back. But I want you to notice something. I must share this with you. I had never seen it till this week. In all the years of studying God's word, I'd never seen this. Notice, notice what Jesus connects here. He says in verse 26, make sure you don't miss this. I tell you, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, me and my words, he connects them together. They are one. To be ashamed of Jesus is to be ashamed of his words. It's one thing, my friends, to talk about Jesus. Especially down here in the south where we live. It's one thing to talk about Jesus, but it's another thing to talk Jesus' words. To say what he says. And friends, listen. Jesus said some tough things. But they're true. He said them in love. We're disciples of Jesus, friends. And guess what? We say his name. Say his name. His name's Jesus. Say his name, but believers, followers, say his words too. Say his name. Say His name over your meals. Say His name over your children as you tuck them in. Say His name when you sing the songs here in church. Say His name when you offer your prayers. But by God's grace, may He help us to say His name as we talk about our life, our hope, our plans, our decisions. His name must be in all of those. Yesterday, President Trump nominated Amy Coney Barrett as a justice to the Supreme Court. She's a federal judge already, has already been approved by the Senate. She is, as I understand, a professing Christian, committed Christian. At her hearing, when she was being questioned by the Judiciary Committee for the federal judgeship, her faith and her belief were scrutinized. And Senator Dianne Feinstein of California said, to Amy Coney Barrett, your dogma lives loudly in you. Your dogma lives loudly in you, meaning your faith is too loud. Well, when I read that, you know what I said? I said in my heart, way to go, Amy. Way to go, Amy. Because whatever makes Senator Feinstein unhappy is usually a good thing. Friends, it's not about dogma. It's about this is what the Lord says. And friend, don't be afraid to live it loudly. The world's loud. Isn't the world loud? Don't be ashamed to say the name. Don't be ashamed to say His words. His words are power. And friend, listen carefully to me. Church, listen carefully to me. Don't be surprised if people get mad. 
and don't whine about it. It just this amazes me. I'm trying not to go into my second sermon here. I'm wrapping this up. <laughs> when Jesus tells us something is going to happen to us, and then it happens to us, and then we whine about it. Somebody explain that. Why should we whine and get angry when what happens is exactly what Jesus said would happen? And when Jesus said, don't whine, don't get angry, rejoice. For they persecuted the prophets which were before you. Rejoice. You're considered worthy to bear shame for the name of Christ. Don't whine and complain. Don't get bitter. Don't get angry. Rejoice that you're a Christian and can speak the name. My friends, we're not going to win people to Jesus Christ by whining and complaining, but by living our lives following Jesus and saying His words and counting the cost. But look what's ahead. I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What's Jesus describing? The destination. Where's the king going? <laughs> He's going to Jerusalem. That's right. But where's he going? He's going back to heaven. He's going to prepare a place. And he's coming again. That's where he's going. Thank God he went to Jerusalem. Amen. Thank God he said, I must do this and I will do this. Thank God that there is a generation that may not see death, but see him come. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we are that generation? But even if we're not, guess what death is? We just taste death. Did you see that? We just taste it. But then it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the eternal banquet in the presence of God. We will see the King. And we'll see our King someday. Living, He loved me. Dying, He saved me. Buried, He carried my sins far away. Rising, He justified freely forever one day what church he's coming oh glorious day embrace the cross it's the crown the first the cross the cross and then comes the crown lord bless this word to our hearts i thank you for these dear ones who've listened so faithfully now, Lord, may we take up your cross and follow Jesus. May you, Lord, help us to see that you are worth it, Lord Jesus, that you have saved us, you have brought us to yourself, and you are worthy of anything that we endure. You are worthy. And Lord, what a treasure we have in you. This life any sorrows, any persecutions it brings, what is that compared to eternal glory in Christ our King? God's people said,